Thanks for joining us for our preaching podcast for the Point Church, Alberta campus. We believe strongly in the expositional preaching of God's Word that builds our faith and grows us up in Christ. We pray that this message will be a help to you on your journey of faith. Now join me as we get to the point. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, would you open them up to Nehemiah chapter 2? Nehemiah chapter 2, if you're using a Bible in the pew, it'll be on page 398. And of course, uh, we'll have the text on the screens uh, for you to read as well. Uh, Last week, we began a new series in the book of Nehemiah, which we entitled Rebuild. And, And in this series, we're walking through the book of Nehemiah to see how Nehemiah was led by God to help rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and rebuild the faith of God's people. Last week, we looked at Nehemiah chapter 1, and, and as we did that, we seen, saw Nehemiah receive a, a bad report from his brother about the state of things in Jerusalem, and, and then we saw his response to that bad report. Nehemiah was burdened uh, by what he heard, and, and as we considered his response, our big idea for the day was that when you've got a heavy burden, begin with intentional prayer. That's what we talked about last week. And as we looked at chapter 1, we saw that that was exactly what Nehemiah did. Uh, Today, as the story of Nehemiah continues, we're going to see that that Nehemiah has come to the moment where he's got to begin to act. And and as we look at our text today, as we see uh, how Nehemiah began his task, I I want you to see that Nehemiah essentially took three steps. He he took three steps. I'm going to give you those right out the gate. So if you're a type A person that just has to have the notes, we're going to go a little bit old school Baptist on you. They're all going to alliterate. But three steps for you, here they are. As as Nehemiah began to uh, decide how he was going to move forward, I want you to see that Nehemiah prayed, Nehemiah planned, and Nehemiah proceeded. Nehemiah prayed, Nehemiah planned, and Nehemiah proceeded. That's it. That's, that's what we got. So with that in mind, let's dive into the text starting at chapter 2. And am, am I hearing a little bit of uh, uh, feedback here? It, can we maybe check that? Uh, Nehemiah chapter 2, starting at verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad? seeing that you are not sick. This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid, and I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And let a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make the beams of the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors in the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. 
Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I returned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words of the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hand for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. We study your word today as we look at this text, as we see how Nehemiah looked at where to begin for this burden that you had laid on his heart, would you teach us a thing today? Would you teach us where we can begin as we look at the the burden that you have given us? God, would you work in us today? Give us a fresh word Help us to go out of here refreshed, energized to serve you in this community, to make much of your name right here in Alberta. We ask this in your beautiful name. And everybody said, amen. Last week as we began Nehemiah, we spent almost all of our time discussing that long intentional prayer that Nehemiah prayed. But before we get into the text today, there is an important kind of detail at the beginning of chapter 1 that impacts our understanding of what's happening here in chapter 2. So so Nehemiah recorded that the events of chapter 1 occurred in the month of Kislev, which I told you last week is approximately late November, early December for us. But now as we begin chapter 2, we see that some time has passed. He begins chapter 2 by saying, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. The month of of Nisan on the Jewish calendar is, is approximately late March and early April for us. So, so really some time has passed here. About four months have gone by. Four months since Nehemiah received the bad report on the state of things in Jerusalem. And for four months, he had been praying that God would do a thing. He had spent four months fasting and praying in deliberate, intentional prayer. Somehow, I think we miss that point if we're not looking for it. Somehow, that just kind of passes over. Remember, Nehemiah is not a priest. Nehemiah is not a prophet. 
Nehemiah is a Jewish servant of the Persian king. And yet, when he received this bad, work, bad news about the state of Jerusalem, he went and spent four months and in intentional prayer. And I kind of like that about Nehemiah. Because what you can see in Nehemiah is that he's just an ordinary man who loves the Lord and was burdened by what broke God's heart. And he dedicated himself to pray. He was an ordinary man put into extraordinary circumstances. And it's just kind of a side note on that. That should say something to us that, that encourages us. Because you don't have to be the pastor. You don't have to be the worship leader. You don't have to be a deacon or a connect group leader to be used by God. Anybody, anybody who loves the Lord can be used by him. That's why last week I asked you guys to be in intentional prayer about the burden that God would place on this church for us. Because I think God can eat, use each and every one of you. That's, that's a side note. Back to chapter 2. Um, last week, we saw Nehemiah intentionally praying, and, and that carries over into chapter 2. In fact, um, chapter 2, uh, that, that prayer we saw at the end of chapter 1, is, is most likely right before the events of chapter 2. So now we come to chapter 2. It's the month of Nisan. Nehemiah is serving before the king, and he says, Now I had not been sad in his presence. Over the past four months, Nehemiah had somehow managed to keep his sorrow, his anguish in check, and he was right to do so. It was expected that, that deference be shown to the king. In fact, we, we can find ancient uh, Persian artifacts, uh, art pieces that depict servants of the king showing deference by, and this is not made up, this is an actual thing. Um, they would, whenever they approached the king, they'd take their right hand, palm in, hold it in front of their mouth so that the king wouldn't have to smell their bad breath. Like that is an actual, like they showed deference to the king. So Nehemiah was right to not want to show his emotions until an opportune time came up. And most scholars think that that is what has happened here. They, they seem to agree that this is some sort of a celebration feast that's happening. It's some sort of a festival. Essentially, Artaxerxes is throwing a party. Everyone's merry. Everyone's happy. Everyone's excited, except Nehemiah. Somehow, Nehemiah just can't keep his anguish to himself. In fact, in this moment, whether intentionally or unintentionally, we, we're not really sure. He can't keep that sorrow in check, and the king notices Nehemiah recorded in verse 2 that the king said to me, Why is your face sad? Seeing that you are not sick, this is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. And I might quickly add that Nehemiah was right to be afraid in that moment. It's possible in this moment that the king was actually suspicious of a plot against his life. You see, the word that's translated there as sadness could also be translated as evil or bad or wickedness. In other words, the king might have been saying, this is nothingness but, nothing but a wickedness of heart. So maybe he was worried about that. Or maybe Nehemiah was, was afraid because of the request he was about to make. You see, what we don't know just from reading Nehemiah, but we will know if we read Ezra, is that this same king had shut down the rebuilding effort before. Not that long ago, a few years before, 
You see, he had been stirred up by some rivals of the Jews in Judah who had reminded Artaxerxes of Zedekiah's revolt against Nebuchadnezzar 150 years before. And essentially what they did is they came to the king and said, hey, listen, listen, these Jews, they can't be trusted. They're up to no good. If you let them rebuild their walls, they will rebel against you. And so Artaxerxes shut down their rebuilding efforts. But now here's Nehemiah. He's about to ask to be uh, allowed to go and do that same thing again. Take a look. He says in verse 3, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the king or when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And there's some wisdom in how Nehemiah responds here. First, he's reaffirming his respect, his loyalty to the king with the customary greeting. Let the king live forever. That was the normal greeting. But then he sidesteps a political landmine by not mentioning the name of his city. Instead, what he does is he appeals to the Persian nobility's respect for the graves of their ancestors. And so what Nehemiah is doing is he's taking that ball. The king has asked him a question. He's taking the ball, and he's throwing it back to the king. And now it's in the king's court, and and Nehemiah tells us in verse 4 that the king said to me, what are you requesting? And we've got to stop right here because what happens next is important. Okay, what happens next is huge. This is the point that we need to anchor on for just a minute. So look what Nehemiah does. Verse 4 continues and says, So I prayed to the God of heaven, verse 5, and I said to the king, Do you realize that the span of time between verse 4 and verse 5 is no more than three seconds? No more than three seconds right there. Like, use your sanctified imagination for a minute. Put yourself in the room right there. You're a fly on the wall in the throne room. Artaxerxes says, What are you requesting? Nehemiah, if it pleases the king. That's it. That's how long he had between the question and his response. And yet, what did Nehemiah do? Nehemiah prayed. And this wasn't a long, drawn-out, intentional prayer like we saw last week. This this was a short, instantaneous prayer. This This is a, God, I need your help right now kind of prayer. This is a, God, okay, tell me what to say right now kind of prayer. That's what Nehemiah prayed. This is the kind of prayer that's born out of a heart that is predisposed to pray. One of my favorite authors is a man by the name of Don Carson. And Don Carson said that Nehemiah's bullet prayer is the outcropping of sustained intercessory prayer in secret. You see, Nehemiah had been praying for four months. Four months of intentional, sustained intercessory prayer for his people, for his city. So as Nehemiah begins to act, as he prepares to make his big request in the split second that he has between when Artaxerxes says, hey, what are you asking? And his actual response, I want you to see that Nehemiah prayed. Last week we saw that when you've got a heavy burden, you begin with intentional prayer. But this week, I want you to see that deliberate, intentional prayer is not the only kind of prayer that we have. We also have these short little bullet prayers, as Carson put it. Nehemiah prayed a short bullet prayer. Uh, This is what I think it means when, when Paul commanded us in 1 Thessalonians 5 to pray without ceasing. 
Or, or maybe what it means, and we saw in our F260 reading this week in, in Romans 12, where we're told to be constant in prayer. It means that we are spring-loaded to go to God with our requests. We're spring-loaded to know that we can ask God for help, even if it's just a short one-second prayer. As Nehemiah prepared to act, as he looked at the burden that he had been given, as he tried to determine what his first step was going to be, you can't miss the fact that Nehemiah prayed. Nehemiah prayed. And we can, and we should pray too. As we steward this ministry that Christ has given us here in Alberta, I want us to be a people who pray. Both intentional, deliberate, long, drawn-out prayers but also the short, instantaneous bullet prayers. So Nehemiah prayed, and then in verses 5 and 6, he records his request and the king's response. Take a look. He says, And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And what what we're seeing here in in these two verses is God at work. What, What we're seeing here is God answering Nehemiah's prayer of the last four months. That's what we're seeing here. God is affirmatively, he's saying, yes, I'm gonna do that for you right now. And so as as this first request is granted, Nehemiah steps out and he makes another request. And and there's some boldness here. What we're seeing in this next request is Nehemiah's faith kind of spurring into action. Remember, the king had commanded Nehemiah to make his request with the first one. The king had said, what are you asking? He's not being asked now. And, And what I think we're seeing is that Nehemiah has recognized that God is at work in Artaxerxes' heart. God is softening the king's heart. God is granting mercy to Nehemiah in the sight of this man, the king. So in verses 7 and 8, he makes another request. He says, And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And let a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And, And apparently, Nehemiah had already been planning, right? He's got an idea of some of the things he's going to need. He knew that if this mission was going to be successful, if this burden that God had given him was going to work itself out, that he needed some of these things. He needed this letter of safe passage to give to the governors of the outer provinces. He needed materials to do the construction that was going to need to happen. And so he asked for them. But I don't think those details are the points of those two verses. I think those details are helpful, but the point of those two verses actually comes in the second half of the last sentence of verse 8. Nehemiah writes, and the king granted me what I asked for. And then here comes the point. For the good hand of my God was upon me. That's the point of, of us being told about the requests that Nehemiah made. Nehemiah fully understood that the mission he was about to embark on was God's mission, not his. Do you see that? This is reminding us that God is the hero of the story, not Nehemiah. 
It wasn't Nehemiah's tact. It wasn't his charm. It wasn't his political skills. It was God working to restore his people. And so we see this reminder. And then from there, the scene abruptly changes. In verses 9 and 10, Nehemiah has left the comforts of the palace. He's traveled thousands, literally thousands of miles to the outer reaches of the Persian Empire. He meets with the governors of the province, Sanballat and Tobiah. These two are not happy that he has come to work. And as we'll see both later today and in the weeks ahead, they're going to actively work to undermine Nehemiah's efforts. But after this meeting, he then travels on to Jerusalem. And most scholars think that his travel after meeting with them was about 18 miles down to Jerusalem. He gets to Jerusalem and he rests for three days. Now, that's a little implied. It's based on what Ezra had, had seen or what we'd seen in Ezra. But he rests for three, three days. And after that, I want you to see that, that Nehemiah planned. He planned his next steps. Skip down to verse 12 with me, if you would. Nehemiah says, Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. And really quick, we got to pause and see what he's saying there. I want you to see the humility in Nehemiah's thoughts right here. The, the plans that he has, they are not Nehemiah's plans. Whose plans are they? They're God's plans. God had placed them on his heart. But I also want you to see that they're not plans for him. They're plans for Jerusalem. Now, now many scholars believe this. They can't prove it. We don't know. It's speculation. But, but many scholars believe that Nehemiah may have been part of the ancient royal family, which would explain why he was in the court of Artaxerxes in the first place. We don't know that. But what we do know is that Nehemiah wasn't doing this to go set up a kingdom for himself. Nehemiah wasn't doing this for his own gain. He's doing this because God had given him a burden for Jerusalem. He's doing this for Jerusalem. There's no inkling of self-centeredness in this text here. The mission he's on, it's not his mission, it's God's mission. It's not about him. And that should be just as true for us today. The mission we're on, the, the burden that I'm praying that God is giving us as a church. It's not our burden and it's not our mission, it's God's mission. We've got to keep that in mind. This thing that we're doing here in, in these buildings, on this property, in the community around us, it's not about us, it's about God. Back to the text. Nehemiah continues in the second half of verse 12. And he says, there was no animal with me, but the one on which I rode. And I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went, out to the, went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. What's Nehemiah doing right there? What's he, what's he doing? He's, he's literally, he's inspecting the walls. He, he departed the wall on, on the western side. And then he traveled south around the southern end of the city and then traveled up the eastern side of the wall until he could not go any further. Then he turned back and went back in the way he had come. 
But what he's actually doing there is planning. He's, he's gaining an understanding of where the work needs to be done. He's surveying what needs to happen. Essentially, he's making himself intimately familiar with what's going on in the city. You see, Nehemiah had received the reports. He had heard all about it, but he needed a firsthand knowledge of what needed to be done. And if you're like me, you might ask the question, well, why did he go at night? I mean, wouldn't it be easier to get that under, like in the day? Like if he went out in the daylight, he'd actually be able to see better. Why did he go at night? And, and the answer is that he probably expected opposition on at least two fronts. First, from those who oppose the Jews as a whole. He expected that, that they might do like they had done in Ezra's day, that it was possible that they might come up and, and stop the work. So Nehemiah keeps his plans to himself. But the other potential opposition might be that he expected a little opposition from, from the Jewish leaders themselves, the, the ones who had already been in the city for a period of time. You see, Nehemiah was an outsider. He was new to the area. So he took the time to become personally familiar with the state of things in Jerusalem. He, he took the time to earn the ability to speak and lead with these people. That was part of Nehemiah's planning process. There's value in knowing the people that we serve. We need to see that right here. There's value in being intimately familiar with the people that we're going to minister to and serve. Nehemiah went out and he got that firsthand knowledge and, and we need to do that as well. That's one of the reasons I love the Feed Alberta program that we're doing right now. Because you guys, members of this church, are taking these bags of food every single week and we're going to the homes of people in our community and we're, we're giving them this food and in that moment, we're having an opportunity to be able to talk with them, to be able to interact with them, to get to know the people of our community better so that we can better serve their needs and proclaim the gospel to them. We have got to know them firsthand. Nehemiah gained that firsthand knowledge of the situation as part of his planning process so that he could lead effectively. And here, what the Bible is showing us is that leaders plan. Praying, trusting God, it, it doesn't mean that we don't plan things. Yes, there are going to be times where, where we pray and then we act, just like Nehemiah did at the beginning of this chapter. But there are also going to be times where we pray and we trust God and we plan. That's what this is showing us. But I also want you to see that as Nehemiah completed his planning, he took his plan and then Nehemiah proceeded. He got to work. Look again at verses 17 and 18. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. And also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hand for the good work. The, the appeal here is pretty straightforward, what Nehemiah is doing here. But, but do you see how he works to own the mission? Do you see how he, he tries to bring the community in to own the mission together? This is a community problem. And so Nehemiah gathers the Jewish leaders together to get them to labor together toward the goal. And at the same time, he, he reassures them that all of this is happening because God is at work. 
Everything that's happening is because God has been at work. He points to his own testimony of how God had worked in the heart of uh, Artaxerxes to, to make this mission happen in the first place, to give them the supplies that they need. He tells them of the words of the king that should encourage them to continue. That's what the first half of verse 18 is showing us. But as soon as the work began for these, these people of God, I want you to notice that so did the opposition. The opposition starts, verse 19, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? The first thing we need to recognize here as we consider these guys that are coming up is that at least Sanballat and Tobiah, they knew the truth, right? Because we saw earlier that Nehemiah stopped and he met with them. They saw the letter from the king. They knew that Nehemiah had been sent with the king's permission, with his blessing, and with his materials. So instead of, of trying to stop the work by legitimate means, they're trying to demoralize the workers. They're trying to discourage the workers by slandering them. Nearly every worker that was there would have remembered Ezra's day. Remember, we're talking less than 13 years ago. Unless you're some of the young kids in the room, you remember 13 years ago, right? They're, they're remembering back to people who had come and accused them of rebelling against the king, and they'd seen the work get shut down before. And here's the thing. False accusations are, are nothing new, right? They've been, they've been being used for thousands of years, and, and I love what one Old Testament scholar said about this. He said that when the enemies of God's work can find no legitimate basis for opposition, they may use ridicule, questioning the significance of our labors. This sometimes does more harm than even questioning our credentials or good intentions, which Nehemiah's enemies also did, because it attacks the very motivation for action. Listen to this part, though. Ridicule is especially hard to endure when the recipients are in the minority, but Christians experiencing it should remember that Hebrews 11 tells us about the biblical heroes of our faith. Some faced jeers and flogging. The world was not worthy of them. These were commended for their faith. Ridicule is going to come. Listen, I'm not trying to spell doom and gloom here. I'm really not. But the reality is, if you look at the culture around us, being a Christian is only going to get harder in the years to come. That's the reality. Okay, the days of Christendom, the, the days where everybody was a Christian, the days where you were expected to, to be a Christian who went to church on Sunday, the days where we were in a majority, those days are over. And that's okay. The Bible tells us that that's going to happen. We shouldn't let that upset us. When persecution, when, when ridicule, when slander, when false accusations come our way, and they will, we need to understand that. We would be very wise to follow the example of Nehemiah. Take a look with me. Take a look. Verse 20. Nehemiah replied to them. He says, then I replied and said, listen, son, I've got a letter from the king. He said, I can be here, so why don't you make like a tree and leaf? It's, a, it's Father's Day. i got to make a bad joke. Come on, guys. There you go. Is that what he said? No. What did he say? What did he say? He said, then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. 
and we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. That's how he responded. You see, Nehemiah didn't stand there and argue with his opponents. He he didn't fight with them. He didn't even deny the accusations. He simply proclaimed his trust in God, and then he got back to work. That's an example that we can follow. That's an example we can follow. We, We have got a mission to do. We've got a task at hand. So what if we just ignored the accusations, didn't fight back? What if we just ignored it and got back to the mission? What if maybe we stopped wasting our time with that and did what we were commanded to do? Think of the power of a witness like that. What if when when persecution comes, we, we respond with, I trust my God. And then I turn around and I get to work. Think about that. Think about what that says. Think about how that proclaims my actual trust that I don't feel like I need to fight God's battles. Some of y'all, I'm I'm off my notes here. Some of y'all need to get off Facebook, okay? We don't need to defend God. God can defend himself. We have a mission to do, so let's do the mission. When we stop trying to fight for God and just do what he's commanded, he'll take care of it. We'll be successful in his mission. So let's stop fighting a battle we don't need to fight. God's got it. He's bigger. He can handle it. He's got thicker skin than we do. He can handle it, I promise you. We don't have to fight back. We can trust God and continue on the mission. But as we consider Nehemiah's response just a little bit further, I can't help but wonder one question that my kids never stop asking. Why? Why did Nehemiah respond the way that he did? Why didn't he go and argue with Sanballat and Tobiah? Why? I think the answer is that he knew that that's not why he left the palace. Nehemiah didn't leave the splendor of the palace in order to come and argue with his opponents. Nehemiah didn't leave the palace in order to come and prove that he was right. Nehemiah left the palace because God had given him a mission to do. And in a lot of ways, because Nehemiah did that, Nehemiah can point us to Jesus. You guys can't miss this right here. You see, Nehemiah left the comforts and the splendor of the palace in Persia to travel to a distant and broken land. Just like Jesus left the comforts and the palace or the comforts and the glory of heaven in order to travel to a broken and sinful world. And when Nehemiah arrived in that broken land, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't have it the way he wanted. He encountered resistance to his mission. He encountered persecution from the political elite, just like Jesus encountered resistance to his gospel message and persecution from the religious elite. And Nehemiah left in order to restore Israel's dignity in the region, but Jesus left heaven in order to restore our dignity and our righteousness before God. Why did Nehemiah respond the way that he did? Two reasons. He had a task that God wanted him to accomplish, and God wanted to use his response to point us to Jesus Nehemiah came to restore Jerusalem, but Jesus came to restore us to God. He he came so that 
he could live the life that we could not live so that he could die the death that we deserve to die on the cross so that he could be buried in a borrowed tomb so that three days later he would rise in victory over sin and death and that if we would place our faith and trust in him, in his finished work, he would give us a new life reconciled to God. And in that he takes our sin We receive his righteousness and we are restored to new life. That's why Jesus came. That's why Nehemiah obeyed the way that he did. You see, Nehemiah's restoration of the walls of Jerusalem was a precursor to the restoration that Jesus would do in our lives at Calvary. That, I believe, is why Nehemiah said, the God of heaven will make us prosper. Because God was going to use Nehemiah to point us to Jesus. When Nehemiah considered where to begin, Nehemiah prayed, Nehemiah planned, and then Nehemiah proceeded. And because he did, he points us to Jesus. 